Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A warm welcome to everyone to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have another great episode ahead. Uh, before we get started, just a big thank you to all of our listeners who have sent in questions or topics for discussion. That's super helpful to us, and we do hope to address most of them uh, in our upcoming episodes. For today, uh, I've got with me Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We're going to start with Phil. Over to you. Great. Thanks, John. So I thought today um, I would start with just an, kind of an open-ended discussion about some historical parallels I've been thinking about in a couple of uh, book recommendations. So as a spoiler alert, uh, spoiler alert I'm going to be giving as a, as a holiday gift one of two books, in some cases both books, uh, to various people. One is going to be Larry Cunningham's new book, Quality Shareholders, which we talked about on the podcast about two months ago, I think it was, when Larry came on. Um, and the other is a book I want to talk about today, which has been really, uh, it's made me stop and think quite a bit. It's a history book that's not like any other history book I've ever read before. It's called Since Yesterday, the 1930s in America by an author named Frederick Lewis Allen. And so before I go any further, I can't remember for the life of me who recommended this book to me sometime in the past couple of months. I actually thought it was Elliot and I emailed him about it and he said it wasn't him. So whoever it is out there. That, it wasn't me. Yeah, I know. I, I could have sworn it was you, but somebody out there I owe a debt of gratitude to. So please, if you hear this and it was you and you talked about it on some other podcast or recommended it to me in an email or a text or on Twitter, or wherever I found it, I don't know. I mean, it it's not an obscure book by any stretch, but it's not super well known. I'd certainly never heard of it. And it's definitely not like any other book I've ever read. So the author, Alan, you know, he he published this book uh, late in 1939, and it covers the period from September 3rd of 1929 to September 3rd of 1939. And he picked those two dates somewhat arbitrarily, but also in, in almost real time uh, to mark in 1929, kind of the exact peak of the bull market. And then in 1939, the exact day in which the United Kingdom declared it was at war with Germany. Um, so two pretty you know, historic dates for sure. So uh, today I, I just kind of want to throw out some observations from the book and, and point out, you know, just how, because I, I don't know if I'm alone in this, I'm probably not, but just how unsettling a lot of this year has been. We have three and a half weeks yet to go in, in 2020 as we record this. So I'm not declaring the calendar over yet, but um, I think a lot of us have been tempted at various points throughout the year to think that, you know, boy, this has really been a horrible year. It's really been miserable. It's been unprecedented, things along those lines. And, and the, the historical parallels to the things in this book really caught my attention, both in the business front sense of things and, and in a broader sense. So I want to throw out some of these observations and just sort of let um, John and Elliot respond to them. And then, of course, we'll take any sort of feedback or questions on them from the listeners as well. And it's really just meant kind of as food for thought because so many things jumped out at me. So the, the parallels that I 
marked marked down as I went through the book were just this massive explosion in nationalism and populism that really took root in that entire decade. The economic extremes that kind of flung back and forth that, that I'll come back to in a minute, particularly with some market data that's pretty interesting, a real fracturing of the world order. Um, the technological upheaval at the time really had people kind of turned on their ear. There was this sense that technology was this kind of evil new thing that was really screwing with people's minds, uh, this communication ability that had proliferated so rapidly um, and, and the rise of powerful media had really kind of turned things upside down. People were very distrustful of that. Um, and the technological upheaval in the economy too was quite noteworthy. And there was this massive sense that there was a very top-heavy economy with these large companies that totally dominated um, industrial activity. And the, the, the stats there are actually quite fascinating. So in... 1935, there were about 500,000 corporations in the U.S., and the collective profit of them was about $1.7 billion. But if you roll that forward to the next available year, where they were able to piece together some data, it was really just about 960 corporations accounted for all of that profit, and the other, you know, nearly 500,000 almost all accounted for a negative, a negative profit, a net loss. Um, and by 1937... Of the top 960 corporations, it was even more top-heavy than that. 60% of the profit was just from the top 42. And a full quarter of all the profit in that top sliver of corporations was by the top six. And those top six in 1937 were General Motors, American Telegraph, Standard Oil, New Jersey, U.S. Steel, DuPont, GE. It's interesting that, I mean, Standard Oil is obviously broken up. All those companies still exist, largely in diminished form, but we certainly have a somewhat of a parallel today in the in the dominance of some massive tech companies that I would argue are one less top, we're, we're in a less top heavy environment than those, but those those tech companies are certainly powerful. But it it bears to mind, you know, just how top heavy the economy really was back then. Um, and then the market swings were just stunning. I mean, you've probably seen some version of this in a history book at some point, but you know, it, from the 1929 peak in September to just a couple of months later in November of 1929, uh, the, the market absolutely crashed. And you saw things like American Telegraph go from a high of $304 a share to 100, 197 General Electric, 396 to 168 General Motors from 72 to 36 U.S. Steel from 261 and three quarters to 150 So, you know, pretty significant 40, 50, 60% drawdowns in some cases in these, you know, very blue chip securities, many of which were owned on margin. What got even more interesting though, is that there was a big bounce, but then the, the ultimate reset down to the low in 1932 was even more severe. AT&T from 1929 to 1932, or American Telegraph at the time, 304 to 70, General Electric 396 to 34, US Steel 261 to 21. And then there was somewhat of a bounce again. You saw it all the way back up to an intra-peak in 1937, August of 1937. And then just an absolute gut-wrenching collapse again by the spring of, of 1938. So, for example, in, in GE's case, 396 and a quarter in September of 1929. And in March of 1938, you're at 27. General Motors, 72 and three quarters to 25 and a half. U.S. Steel from 261 to 38. Along the way, there were obviously lots of bank failures, 
massive deflation in commodity prices. I mean, it's just really stunning. And if you look at the unemployment data, you know, we think it we have it bad now. Uh, exact numbers were somewhat hard to come by, but it'd be pretty reasonable to say that there were somewhere between 30 and 35 million people unemployed at the peak in 1932 if you were to take the same proportion in 2020 population. We had about 23 million people in the U.S. unemployed in April of 2020. So nowhere near as bad this year as it was then. Socially, lots of parallels. I mean, the decriminalization of, of alcohol consumption with the repeal of prohibition, lots of legalization of, of other substances in the current environment. You know, there there was actually a, a strong move away from, from work in the office. And there was, it wasn't called work from home, but you had a, a very strict kind of six-day work week back then where at least on half a day on Saturday, you know, the market was open and banks were always open and most businesses were open. And that was scaled back to five weeks. So to spread people's hours out more than uh, lay them off, if you could, um, you know, you, you had this massive boom in democratization of sports and leisure where, you know, people were getting outside more and, and enjoying sports like golf or tennis, um, which had been declining for years. Um, you saw a huge increase in the 1930s in gambling, which is really interesting because you're certainly seeing the same sort of thing today. And there were just a lot of things where, you know, the, the way the author put it, I thought just captured the mood quite well. That Despite this uptick in sports and leisure activities, there was a new tension, a new disquiet for the depression had wrecked so many of the assumptions upon which the American people had depended that millions of them were inwardly shaken. You know, there's this sense that college degrees kind of conferred immediate employability. And you're certainly seeing that question again today. And I would argue higher education is probably most get most at risk for for long-term change. You know, the plenty of investment edges. I mean, there, there have been entire books obviously written about the folly of the 1920s and the shakeout of that in the 1930s. And, you know, certainly many of the federal uh, economists in, at the Fed and the central bankers all over the world who studied the Great Depression as a case study in what not to do. Um, and it, it's it's fascinating to see it out, you know, play out again in, in real time. Um, so, and, you know, just little things too, like the, the political polarization of that era was stunning. I mean, I, I still remember reading about how an early lesson Buffett learned was his dad, who was a congressman from Nebraska, you know, thought FDR was just the root of all evil and that socialism was coming and that capitalism was under threat. And of course, those are a lot of things we're hearing again today. And it's it's pretty funny because if you look at the election of 1936, when Alf Landon of Kansas was running, the quote in the book was that the conservative diehards were already in the bag and would vote for the devil himself to beat Roosevelt. Public feelings were at such extremes, no, more so than at least since, 19, since 1896, angry voters on both sides with extreme outcomes. And there was even a polling controversy at the time, because in the election of, of 1936, uh, there was a, a poll run by the Literary Digest, which was basically the, the leading pollster of the day. had run polls for many, many years and decades. And they predicted that, that Alf Landon would get 320 electoral college votes to FDR's 101. And the actual result was eight. So FDR won 523 to eight. So a little bit of a mistake there, which is pretty funny given how worked up a lot of people are right now about a relatively small and and, and somewhat typical polling error in, in 2020. So anyway, the, the things that I took away from this were just that, you know, you can't predict anything on the basis of this. You can't 
certainly shape your entire worldview based on any of this. But what what were the lasting changes back then that people were baking into their assumptions that proved just dead wrong? I mean, how many people saw the market recover in you know what's called the New Deal honeymoon period, where they thought this period of you know enhanced fiscal spending and deficit spending was just going to cure all evils and market prices rallied and it, you know you had two or three head fakes over the course of a decade where people just got continuously washed out in the market and how many people you know Ben Graham himself you know were severely tested by you know having enough patience and capital and liquidity to withstand this massive roller coaster and just the psychological burden of watching that happen over and over again after year after year after year with long unemployment figures and, and just massive social upheaval all around us. And so I'm not suggesting something like that is is dead ahead for the next decade, but I think it's well worth thinking about not to be too gloomy. And so it just got me to thinking as I kind of went through the comparisons of what was happening back then and what was happening today as to what you know assumptions we might be banking baking in now. Uh, for example, with the pandemic still raging, um, at least in in the U.S. and certainly in parts of Europe too, you know what assumptions are we making for the recovery in the next in 2021 or even the next two to five years that might prove to be totally wrong? I mean, what what assumptions are we baking in about you know the impacts of deficit spending if we get another you know trillion or two trillion dollar infrastructure bill next year? You know, just like the infrastructure spending of the New Deal in the 1930s, what impacts will that have? Will there be massive regulatory reform? just like the proliferation of centralized, you know, bureaucratic power in the 1930s and what impacts would those have? So those are kind of the things that I'm thinking about. And I wonder, John and Elliot, I'll open it up to you guys and and just get your opinions on, you know, kind of first your reactions to that. And and second, you know, what kind of impacts you think might be around the corner that we're either underweighting or overweighting. Yeah. So really interesting. Uh, Appreciate you putting this book on my radar. I had read um, a while back, uh, per Morgan Housel's recommendation, I know you uh, brought up Morgan last week, a uh, book, The Great Depression, A Diary by Benjamin Roth. And I thought that was fascinating primary history of someone who lived through the time speaking it through, like, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's a period I've studied a lot. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on history when I was in college and before and after as well. Uh, for a lot of reasons, I think that decade uh, and the next decade influenced the lives of so many people and kind of like put us, I, I don't know, every one of us, I think, has a story where our family was influenced in major ways by that epic. But I, I have a lot of thoughts as you were going through um, these ideas and sharing it. So on uh, the one hand, I could say like, yeah, you know, let's keep drawing out that analogy. Effectively, at that time, you were going from an agrarian to an industrial economy which has parallels for us going from a brick and mortar to a primarily digital economy. Um, You mentioned Buffett's dad. And I think about like, yeah, he was in the John Birch Society, which is basically like the tea party of our time. Um, So, you know, that's, yeah, 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 exactly. Even more so. And so, you know, that's, that's very real. There are like a lot of very similar forces, but then on the other hand, I think about like, you know, I spent a lot of time reading about the period leading up to world war one as well. And there's a great book called The The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914. Um, And I had to look it up uh, when you introduced this topic because I was like thinking about these ideas. Um, There's a, there, there, I mean, it's an awesome book. It's a really long book. There's one quote that I like kept somewhat accessible. 
And it's, I have the very clear impression that in the next 30 years, we are going to see in Russia a prodigious economic growth. And this is from the preeminent French economist in 1913, and it was uniformly agreed upon uh, in the European world that Russia was the emergent power and their economy would be so formidable that everyone had to think about how to contend with that. And, you know, within four years, they were uh, under a communist revolution and, you know, there was uh, no prodigious future for Russia as, as was envisioned. So, of course, like, you know, forecasts are, are incredibly, incredibly challenging. Um, but, okay, so why did I bring up this period? I think with the pre-World War I era, every time I read about that, I'm like, wow, we're living through that era right now. You know, it was a time of growing globalization. Um, there were like increasing bonds and connections between countries, though there were certain rivalries that you could start uh, seeing a form. Um, there was like a similar kind of like global intellectual class that was emerging. You know, like I, I, it's it, it's one of those periods where like, I don't know, maybe it was a little more like 1999 in some ways where there's this like glowing optimism about how technology and interconnections between countries would lead to all these great sorts of things. But I still feel that's infused in our culture, though, like, you know, now we're experiencing the backlash of it. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it feels like, yeah, absolutely, we have these analogies. Um, but on the other, it's like every time I look at an epic of history that's like really, really consequential, it's very easy to to say like, wow, that sounds just like right now. And then maybe to like take it one step further, perhaps it does feel like we're headed to the 1920s where, you know, you have this um, pandemic uh, that people have to adjust and deal with that's, you know, really hard. And you've just gone through several years of, you know, things being kind of challenging in general. Um, and then, you know, perhaps we're paving the way for the roaring 20s. And I know a couple other people have been talking about that. I've, I've been talking with that with some people about that in, in March and April, even how like this pent up, uh, we can't live our lives is going to lead to like an incredible enthusiasm for getting out and living our lives when the time comes. And then I guess one big missing parallel with the 1930s, I think the 1930s was a uh, banner decade for uh, labor rights and the and, and the development of uh, um, bar and and like increasing bargaining power for labor and I feel like we're going through the exact opposite and you could trace out a lot of consequences for that for life in general in a lot of different ways um, so I know I'm all over the place but I think that's part of the point like it's very interesting to study history and to think about where we do and don't uh, kind of connect with that with those times. Yeah, I, I think those are all great points, and, and I'm equally all over the place, so I fully appreciate it. There is no like one tidy route to take as you think about this or talk about it, so those are all great points. And you know, I, I guess I would circle back to just, this isn't meant to be a direct comparison of today versus the era of the 1930s. The, the parallels that I mentioned were just so striking in some ways. I thought they were worth bringing up really just as food for thought and, and not much beyond that. You know, I will say one parallel that struck me as potentially being quite a bit different, which was, if I can find the exact quote, was was basically that, you know, despite the absolute kick in the teeth that America had taken, even by 1938 and 1939, there was still this pervasive sense of optimism. You know, I think the, the quote was something like, you know, I'm as soon as I can scrape together the capital, I'm going to buy that other 40 acres. I'm going to open that new business. I'm going to do something. There was still 
you know, despite this this shaky, nervous, awkward tension that a lot of people felt, and the fact that most people who are really thoughtful about things really looked back to the 20s as just a lifetime ago, and that a lot of their foundations and their lives had been shaken. And they were obviously looking at what had happened in Europe over the preceding years very nervously and kind of realizing that, you know, the war clouds were gathering and that's a whole other topic. But there was still this pervasive sense of optimism, a collective optimism. And I wonder how different that is to today, because I certainly don't feel like there's quite so much optimism, uh, at least out there in America, as I perceive it right now. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. But And, and to your point, Elliot, one other thing that that stood out, you know, kind of your thoughts spurred me to to bring up was that there's a line that said the the best uh, you know response to all these predictions that people were making at various points. So this this was the author responding to kind of the pervasive predictions about what was going to happen with the upcoming war was that if in 1929 our best thinkers thought capitalism was triumphant, and in 1933 they thought communism was becoming triumphant, and in 1938 they think fascism is becoming triumphant, what will they think in 1943? So I think that kind of captures it really well, which is, if I have a message in this little rambling spiel, it's just that um, overconfidence is, as always, pervasive, and as we talked about last week, and that predictions, especially about the future, are really hard. And that all the things we're focused on right now and today may or may not prove to be the things that we should be focused on if we're looking out five years from now. So true. It's such a powerful point. John, what do you think? Have we spurred you on anything? Oh, just a a question for you, Phil. I'm wondering whether the book talks at all about monetary policy in the 1930s, because that seems to be such a big factor these days. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they definitely do. I mean, it's funny because they talk about how, you know, depending on who is in power, you know, even one side flipping to the other, going from a deficit scold to a let's just spend money like it's confetti. Um, So that that definitely rings true today, right? So, um, but yeah, look, they they quote you know at, at length, at least in one section, about the explosion in in deficit spending, where you know the 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 annual budget deficit of the United States more than doubled over a period of three or four years in the New Deal era. Um, I don't think it got an undue amount of attention in the book. So the the, the book is kind of odd. I should back up a step, a step. The book is not a conventional history book in the sense that we're probably used to reading back in our school days. It's really this kind of panorama and this collection of vignettes that are kind of loosely tied together. And it's it's very interesting in that this author was managed to kind of take like a look back at the recent history, like what was it like to live in that period that we just went through if you were to just be an alien landing in outer space, you know, reading about the the headlines in the newspaper and experiencing it on the ground and what were people thinking and doing. So it's not meant to be an academic history in any sense. It's a, it's a man on the street kind of history, which I think makes it so interesting. So anyway, they, di- they do talk a lot about you know, kind of the the business workings of the New Deal and the deficit spending of the New Deal. And there's certainly quite a bit of attention paid to, to Elliot's point about the John Birch Society and others. I mean, they don't address, address the John Birch Society directly, I don't think, but they certainly talk about how basically the entire moneyed class and the, you know, upper upwardly mobile urban and suburban elite class that was certainly less impacted by the Depression, particularly in its first three years or so, 
became almost immediately distrustful to the point of hateful toward Roosevelt and how there was this sense that he was just ruining everything and that the pervasive word of the day was confidence. And they just kept waiting for confidence to return. And so they were distrustful of the system because they didn't think that printing money created any confidence. And they thought it actually destroyed confidence. And so it's similar in some ways to today. I mean, I was just looking at the figures the other day. I mean, there's something like two and a half trillion dollars of net inflows to the deposit accounts of the commercially insured U.S. banks just this year, year to date. And I think it's actually, I think it was 2.7 if memory serves. And and new loan demands like half a trillion or something. So you have a net two trillion of money that's flowed into deposit accounts at banks just sitting there basically earning and charging no interest and waiting to be deployed at some point. And the same was actually somewhat true back then. I mean, you just had a massive amount of money sitting idle. Back then, they, you know, the other factors to blame were, you know, not just lack of demand, certainly that, but also quite high taxes and uh, actually surprisingly high interest rates, expensive labor, believe it or not, despite the massive unemployment, it was actually hard to get certain projects done. Um, so just a different set of circumstances in a lot of ways. But yes, John, to circle back to your direct question, I mean, certainly the concept of of printing money and, and monetary expansion was a huge feature of that era. And it does get some treatment in the book, but not as much as it would in a purely economic or academic history. Yeah, I definitely find it fascinating to think about the parallels that, you know, actually apply versus ones that kind of on the surface apply, but not really. Like maybe one that applies on the surface is, you know, this um, perception of, you know, the 1930s being this great technological revolution and um, um, that even communications or media, they, they were revolutionized. But I think fundamentally they had less of an impact on you know, the day-to-day of people as compared to social media of today. I think that the amount of time spent on social media today is just a lot greater. Although I think once TV really ramped up, uh, people were spending a ton of time watching. But I also think the interaction is just so different. And and just if you think about the sheer computing power, I think that's, that's one thing I'm really struggling to understand is... Um, you know, that that kind of goes to the question of AI is um, with computing power continuing to increase exponentially, are we getting to a point where AI really will be this threat to mankind as we know it? And I think that's something we just don't know yet, uh, but it does feel different than, let's say, in the 1930s. Another, yeah, that's that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a just as a quick response, I certainly don't have any intelligent thoughts to offer on uh, whether artificial intelligence is going to become a, a threat to humanity. It certainly wouldn't be an area I'd want to make any strong predictions in, to say the least. Uh, there's plenty of smart people that I think could argue both sides. They might lean more in the camp of being concerned. I don't know. But it, it, to your point about social media, I mean, one thing I would point out that is really interesting, I mean, the having just read a bit on the subject and in, in another book I'd recommend off offhand. It's about two years old now, but P.W. Singer's written several books that are worth reading. And one of them, I think it was 2018, was called Like War, which is about the weaponization of social media. And I think coming out of the election last month in the U.S. here that uh, it's top of mind for a lot of people. And, and to your point, 
I don't actually know how much time we spend with social media relative to other uh, periods engaging with different kinds of media. But, you know, you look back to the 1930s and in this book, I mean, certainly at the Orson Welles, uh, you know, hoax, basically. It was an intentional hoax. It was fully disclaimed where he went on the radio and said that Martians had landed um, in various places around the U.S. And it was a very, for the time, elaborate thing that they had done. It was all over the radio. But, you know, thousands, if not millions of people fell for this and, and ran into the streets panicking, you know, calling the police department, you know, packing up their cars and fleeing for the hills. So you did have a lot of that. There was certainly a massive amount of uh, conspiracies floating around at the time. I mean, there was, you know, a, a quite pervasive thought that the entire Roosevelt family was just a bunch of drunks, that Roosevelt was preparing to hand down the American presidency to all of his heirs, that he would basically never leave office, which again, was a different set of circumstances for sure. But there were there was quite a bit of uh, similar human behavior just sourced from a different place and expressed somewhat differently. And I'd be curious to know, I mean, you know, people back then did spend a lot of time reading. They spent a lot of time engaging with the radio. They spent a lot of time gathered around the ticker tape. Um, you know, at brokerage offices in the financial media. So I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know if they were able to spend even a similar amount of time as we do today with with social media. But anyway, go ahead. I know you had another point to follow that up. It's interesting you mentioned P.W. Singer because his recent book, Burnin, about the relationship between, you know, humans and AI not too far in the future is, you know, yeah. very relevant too. Fascinating yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I would just kind of jump in with um, kind of also looking at some of the crazy uh, things that are happening in the markets today versus back then or the amount of, um, you know, I think anytime you get this kind of a bubble style market, you get, you have a lot of um, bad actors, a lot of fraud, um, and actually a book that I would recommend on the period of the 1920s and 30s is called One Single Conda by John Brooks. He talks about um, this character, a, a real life character, Richard Whitney, an aristocrat Morgan banker who was actually head of the New York Stock Exchange. And he ended up in Sing Sing basically for all kinds of uh, market related fraud. but. You know, I think so. That's kind of also a barometer. You know, um, how much fraud are we seeing? How many really um, shady or or flaky issues coming to market? And a few come to mind uh, that are quite current. You know, so that's probably another parallel. One thing that I also really uh, wonder about, just going back to that point on on monetary policy and money printing, because. Clearly, this year, uh, 2020, we've gotten just a huge increase in uh, the money supply. You look at M2, for example, I think it's up um, maybe even 40% or, or some number like that. And I don't know how it was back in the 1930s, but today it feels like there really is no political will to rein this in, either on the left or the right. So the left wants to just keep spending uh, like crazy, and the right wants to keep lowering taxes like crazy, and both are just mean more deficits and more money printing to kind of paper that over. Um, so that's going to be interesting to watch, I think, whether that political will emerges at some point, um, even just on one side of the political aisle, it would probably be helpful. 
And I have to assume that at some point after the 1930s, it did emerge because we didn't end up with hyperinflation, although there was you know, some inflation that was clearly greater than today. But I think the real fear today is that due to a lack of political will, you could actually see hyperinflation for the first time uh, with the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and certainly demographics are far different today than they were then, which plays a big role. And the world's just a far different place. So there's there's no drawing a straight line in parallel to any of this kind of stuff. But those are those are great points. There's one thing, Phil, that you said I'd love to come back to because it's interesting and it's sitting in my head. This idea that, you know, the 30s was in the American optimism persisted through the hard times of the 30s. And it's something I wonder about because like, on the one hand, there's this incredible optimism about technology and the role it's making for the future. Uh, but on the other hand, like on a, on a more bottoms up level, um, the disruptions from technology have led to a lot of cynicism uh, from like, you know, pockets of people in all corridors of American life. On, on what's happening here, including, you know, some perspectives toward like the debasing of the dollar and other perspective towards the role of labor and, you know, what obligations we have a society have to kind of retrain people displaced by technology for, for uh, the future. Um, and, you know, on the, it's hard to kind of disentangle what's meant as syn- lack of optimism toward America versus toward the future generally. Um, but the, you know, depending on who you talk to in, in, in different circles, uh, it, you could find people to take either side of it. Um, but I similarly, when I read Roth's diary, I noted like there, this optimism toward America, like he was writing his path toward trying to, uh, about his path toward trying to own more stock and about how the only thing holding him back was an inability to earn uh, money from his job to put toward the stock market sort of thing. And so, you know, you do have that to an extent here, like people want to own a piece of it. Though I don't know if the incentive is as uh, genuine in that sense. Um, But yeah, I wonder why that is and why it's so different. I wonder if having that generation having come out of a war of uh, perceived noble cause versus our generation coming out of a war, two two wars of somewhat... um, I don't know that that never really ended, and that had um, a, a big taint in in cause, kind of uh, damaged that sort of uh, national enthusiasm. So I I don't really know, but that's something I really it's an interesting point. Yeah, it's fascinating. Look, I should I should clarify. I don't really know. I'm not a historical expert enough on the era, particularly to to say whether there was actually a, a kind of stick with it optimism in the late 1930s, despite what had just happened over the prior 10 years. Uh, that that was certainly this one author's take on it. And I, to your point, you could obviously find legions of people on both sides of that argument. And I'm sure the same is true today. I mean, I I was offering somewhat of my take there, but I, no doubt there are plenty of people today that would argue both sides um, of the optimism uh, debate. So it's uh, there there is no certain one answer there. And, and you know, I guess technology in that regard, I think their technology is at the forefront right now. I mean, technology is always with us, right? Anything new that is happening is by definition technology and new technology. And, and it's having a, a real moment right now. And I think a lot of that is really good. And I think that can drive a lot of optimism. So maybe, you know, 
maybe we'll look back five or 10 years from now and say that there was actually a good bit of optimism that translated into results. Who knows? Well, technology reminds me a little bit of kind of um, also nuclear weapons, if you will, because you can do so much good, but you can also do a lot of bad with technology. And, uh, you know, the human mind and um, just human nature has not evolved the way technology has evolved. So in a lot of ways, we're still cavemen, and yet we're handling these really, really powerful things. So that's just something to watch. You know, are we going to get smarter as a species so that all these things that can be forces for good don't end up destroying us? For sure. I mean, you think about nuclear weapons and and all the things that could have happened over the intervening decades. It's something I think about a lot is what, what could have happened, you know, whether it was General Petrov in Russia or somewhere else that, you know, it's, it's actually at this point, probably the odds were against us that we would have gone, you know, several decades, obviously, since the deployment of any nuclear weapons. It's kind of sobering to think about. Elliot, let's go on to you for your topic of the week. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about a book I'm reading right now as well. Uh, the book is Where Good Ideas Come From uh, by Stephen Johnson. I'm not going to talk about the book itself per se. I'm going to use it to kind of like steer into another conversation. Um, this book was recommended to me by Rishi Gazelia. Uh, one of my highlights of 2020 when we could actually take planes was heading out to San Francisco and I met Rishi for lunch and an awesome walk around Shoreline uh, Amphitheater. So it was exciting for me to like even just see Shoreline, uh, the park and the amphitheater. I was a big Grateful Dead fan, uh, hadn't a- ever been there for music, but it was really cool to kind of be across the street from the Google headquarters and walking around there with a with a great person. Um, and he recommended this book and it's like taken me a lot longer to get to it than I had hoped, but now I'm, fi- I'm finally reading it and absolutely loving it. And there's a, you know, the whole book's interesting, but I really have taken to um, this one chapter on slow hunches. Um, and the idea of a slow hunch is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, everyone talks about invention coming from these epiphanies, but many of these epiphanies are actually uh, seeds that were planted for a long time within the mind of the inventor. But also there's a lot of like environmental uh, conduciveness that's been built, uh, that the environment has made itself ready for this epiphany to have happened. So both on the personal and the global level, there's really like a lot that leads up to the actuality of this epiphany. It's not so much this one aha moment as one would have you believe. And then, you know, similarly, in my last commentary, I wrote about this idea of building campfires uh, and getting to what's called the auto-ignition temperature or the kindling point where the fire is self-sustaining and relating it to how when you build a fire, you know, to truly get there, you don't want to just like take big wood and try to light it on fire. You have to put a lot of foundational work in. You start with like really small kindling. Um, You get that lit, add slight layers of larger wood and larger wood until you get to the big logs. Like you can't just suddenly go uh, toward the, you know, beautiful looking kind of, a uh, prototypical picture of a campfire. Um, there's a lot that goes into getting there, and this preparatory work and foundational work uh, is really important. And, you know, all of these things get me thinking. I've had this affinity for a long time, and I've uh, spoken to it and about it, um, but it hadn't really had a good, I think, analog or framework to kind of like putting it out there. I've always had this affinity for companies who take a really long time to figure out 
who they are, where they're going, and how they actually make money. They start with an idea that's something that like works or that accomplishes some goal, but it's not necessarily a business. Like it actually does something, but it doesn't go somewhere. Um, so you know, the contrast I offered in my letter was uh, uh, Roku v- uh, versus two of the other uh, hotshot IPOs of 2017 which were Snap and Blue Apron. And Roku actually, Hotshot, in hindsight, seems appropriate, but at the time, they actually priced down uh, the IPO. Um, Roku, in contrast to Snapchat and, uh, or Snap and Blue Apron, had been founded in 2002, so 15 years before its IPO. They debuted their first product in 2008, nine years before its IPO. The other two companies, Snap, was founded in 2011. So it was founded six years before IPO and came public as a rocket ship. Um, and you know, Blue Apron was founded in 2012 and came public as a rocket ship. Um, but there's something that's like destabilizing about not having had that really long period of struggling and of trying to make it and of trying to like build the, every little thing, all these like kind of compounding advantages that you could as a company. Um, it just, you know, wasn't happening with, with, uh, it, it's just a very different, like the nature of the beast is very different. Um, when you have to like struggle, when you have to think about like, how do I finance myself? And, you know, uh, when you think about how do you like employ people and build a business and compete and find your role in the ecosystem. So I, you know, had suggested at the end of the letter, I found another one of these companies. And I think it's really interesting. The company is Naked Wines. I had mentioned it once on the podcast before. Um, Naked Wines was founded in 2008, launched in the US in 2012, and only uh, last year uh, around this time got to exist as its own company. Um, And I think only now is it truly hitting escape velocity. Um, there's, you know, a, a thoughtful business model that was able to scale, but it took a really long time to get the pieces in place, both environmentally, right? Now you have the tailwind of COVID where some states have eased their regulations on being able to ship wine directly to customers. Um, and customers have, you know, sought it out as opposed to having had the idea find them. Um, so it's made the customer acquisition process very different. Um, and, you know, I think because of all the work that they've done to get to this point, uh, because they've done and taken all the foundational work um, and because it's been a really slow, arduous process building to this point, I think it's a very different kind of beast um, than, you know, what you think about with some of the high flyers. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm getting at inevitably is I, I think the longer it takes to build something, the more work that goes into getting there, the the sturdier something is uh, for for a very long time. Um, so, you know, I was wondering, uh, in general, I could talk more about Naked Wines, but I think it would be more interesting to hear about, um, how, like, frameworks for good ideas, what you guys think about this whole notion of a, uh, epiphany versus a slow hunch that takes a lot of work to build towards, um, if you've observed similar, uh, foundational elements in companies that that take a really long time, uh, a certain institutionalized patience, um, and then see where we go from there. Yeah, sure. I think it's a great point. And I, I would say that not only do I believe in that idea, I would be almost immediately distrustful of anyone who claimed to have done it some other way. Because if you've truly hit some level of excellence and proficiency and claim to not have had some real stumbles along the way and had to change direction and overcome some real hurdles at various points. Uh, it just 
strikes me as unreasonable to the point of being likely absurd. So I, I don't care whether it's an athlete who, you know, at least once or twice has been cut from a team or had a significant injury or a startup that just went from, you know, an overnight epiphany to, you know, right up the venture capital rocket ship to in a straight line to a brilliant IPO or whatever. I, I don't think that there is any realistic number of companies in that world. And so I, I am a hundred percent with you. And I actually think it's a it's an interesting way of framing it, whether it's an epiphany or not, because I think there always is some sort of idea and spark and light bulb that goes off. But I think a lot of the best companies do take that initial spark and light bulb and start applying it, but they almost always end up going in a slightly different degree, a slightly different direction that some degrees pivoted from the original direction. So, you know, Amazon obviously had designs on on big things, but you know, they, they've changed their mind and, and ended up in some places that they themselves could have never even envisioned. Berkshire Hathaway, likewise. I mean, I don't, it was clearly going to be an investment vehicle, but I don't think that much of any of it in its current form was all that predictable, even by Buffett himself 20, 30, 40 years ago, just broad strokes and culturally and and, and ethos. Um, I, so yeah, I think it applies to almost every great business that they had one sort of idea, epiphany, whatever you want to call it, that sparked the initial work and got the ball rolling down the hill. But then from there, it was kind of anything goes and it just had to had to make sense. And that was the only prevailing commonality. But um, I don't know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really struggling to think of any examples of companies or, or people that just had an immediate straight line rocket ship. I mean, you go back to some of the absolute phenom. I mean, to our point, I mean, even Mike Trout got sent down to the minor leagues, right? So I'm trying to think of even just a single company or athlete or somebody that didn't ever have a kind of a, a near-death experience is probably overstating it, but a real struggle and having to make a real change at some point or another. I can't think of any. Right. Well, I do think like Snap and Blue Apron were both lightning in a bottle up till their IPOs and each had to make meaningful adjustments. Uh, and, you know, one successfully, Snap success, so far successfully, has uh, kind of evolved its existence while Blue Apron never was able to do that. Um, I would offer one distinction. The chapter before the uh, slow hunch was called the adjacent possible. So I think like Amazon's Pivots aren't as much a pivot as they were explorations of the adjacent possible and using their platform and, and, and the power they had there to explore what else was nearby and opportunity. Um, as far as pivots are concerned, another like kind of slow hunch that I think is really interesting to observe that I'm involved in as well, uh, indirectly or well directly, I guess, is Vimeo. Because like Vimeo was effectively uh, a number two to YouTube. And, you know, in the internet where we're talking about the land of power law, uh, you know, being number two to YouTube is almost irrelevant. But they did notice there were clusters of these, like their their essence was much higher quality, more polished video, and they had unique kinds of creatives on there. Um, so what they did was they changed their business model from trying to be kind of like a user gen uh, content connected with users uh, to just merely building the tools to empower uh, creatives to make better product, um, to make their product as as good as possible. And so many good videos that end up on YouTube now are actually built in Vimeo. So they're not even trying to compete. They're really trying to empower 
um, and coming at it from an, a different angle. And that was like a hunch that took a long, long, long time for them to figure out. Um, and it almost looked like perhaps the business wasn't even going to end up being much of anything at a certain point. Um, and they were experimenting with all kinds of different business models. But then there you go. All of a sudden you have this and it's a SaaS business model and it's exactly what this environment craves. But yeah, you know, lightning in a bottle. I mean, I think Facebook was kind of it too. They never had really stumbled until their IPO. Um, and that was like a stumble in more perception. Uh, but then they actually had to, you know, really fight a big challenge against Google um, with Plus and against, um, you know, their own, like, they were tied to desktop and had to evolve to, modem, to mobile. And one of the hard things when you do strike lightning in a bottle in that way is you don't have like a, the DNA to deal with challenges. You're not infused with that from the beginning. So these like really slow developers kind of have that in their DNA. They're a little leaner in how they operate, um, not profligate with their spending in the same way. You look at someone like Dropbox, I think they were spending something like $30,000 a year for employees on uh, food, bev, and entertainment uh, heading into their uh, pre-IPO struggles. Um, so all, all these kinds of things, I think, I think matter, you know, when, when you're slower to get there, you're a lot leaner, you're a little more efficient, more humble, uh, all, all, all those important traits. Um, but, you know, I think it also applies to like thinking about investments too. I'm wondering with, with you guys, like the idea of Genesis, like how long you go from when you're first introduced to an idea to when you actually invest in it, like how the process plays out and like, what the moment when something goes from a really good idea to one you'd put money behind it looks like, perhaps? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll jump in quickly and then let John um, weigh in on it. I, I probably struggle with this more than I should, um, given how much experience I've had with it. There are plenty of times where I've evaluated the situation correctly and relatively quickly and then failed to act on it as quickly as I should. So... Uh, it varies a lot. I mean, I will say that I'm probably never, almost never going to commit serious amounts of capital to any idea without having thought about it deeply for dozens and likely hundreds of hours. Um, so I, I can't imagine a scenario where I would hear about something and immediately do it. But, you know, smaller things or um, other things. I mean, there are there are there are plenty of cases where I ought to be able to hear about something, <clears throat> excuse me, and then spend 30, 40, 50 hours on it over the course of a week and and then act on it in a matter of days. And uh, I've failed to do that more than I care to admit. So, um, you know, my desire to be thorough and thoughtful can almost be a hindrance at times. You, you know, there are times where you learn everything you really need to know and everything that's practical to know fairly quickly. And at that point, you should act if you if you have the ability to do so. And, and I think you know, there's, it's not a dogma per se, but just this, you know, intellectual purity of, I know everything there is to know kind of pursuit. And that can be really counterproductive at times. John, what do you think? Yeah. If I can maybe just first go back to the concept of slow hunch as it applies to companies. And then I'll talk about um, my own investment ideas. I think as it applies to companies, you know, it's feels very much like an antithetical idea to how VCs um, operate these days, uh, venture capital, you know, this idea of blitz scaling, which is the uh, book title by Reid Hoffman as well. Um, and, and the notion that if your company doesn't feel chaotic, you're moving too slowly. 
Um, so there's definitely that kind of prevailing uh, wisdom out there today, it seems. And, uh, you know, I can see why, because if you have a market that's really receptive to money losing, super fast growing companies, you want to get that IRR uh, up and put as much capital through that uh, process as, as possible. Um, but, or, you know, maybe Google is an example, another example of a rocket ship idea. I think, you know, they pretty much started seeing the exponential growth very early on and started seeing uh, profitability pretty early on as well. Whereas Amazon, um, you know, might be more of a, a slow hunch idea, although Elliot, I don't know if based on that definition you just mentioned with adjacent spaces, whether that would qualify uh, for slow hunch. Um, but to me, it also feels like Twitter might be an example of a slow hunch uh, idea, just in the sense that in the way they've they're monetizing or not monetizing to date, but I feel like they're finally getting there in terms of monetization and the final, the ultimate verdict is still out, but it feels like they're finally uh, moving in that direction. Um, I also feel like slow hunch companies tend to be owner operated um, because owner operators are likely to have a more of a long-term view uh, than just kind of uh, agency management uh, looking to flip and get paid. Um, LVMH to me is a great example of a slow hunch uh, company that's just executed consistently over decades. Um, in terms of just my own ideas, I mean, <laughs> I'd have to say I intend for them to be rocket ships, but they inevitably turn into slow hunch ideas. Um, where, you know, it just, the market does not seem to agree very quickly, uh, with, with my ideas. Um, obviously what matters ultimately is whether, you know, um, that weighing machine agrees with you rather than the voting machine. Um, but certainly I would echo Phil, uh, you know, your feelings around, just needing some time to really develop conviction uh, on an idea. I do find it helpful, like um, Tom Gaynor, to kind of dip your toes in and get that get the, the brain really working on what the risks are and so forth. Um, that's helpful to me. But to really take that big step um, usually takes some time, and, and that's fine. Um, I feel like... You know, I, I, the conviction is just a lot better if something takes a little more time uh, to start working. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Uh, there's something like when I feel an idea that just can't, that, that keeps bugging me, that keeps coming back to me, no matter how many times I put it aside, then I know it's probably something good. Um, LVMH is such an interesting and good example of that. It's like we were all talking about these like newer techie companies and LVMH like so checks all the boxes. Um, I think I think that's a really interesting one. Um, and and you know you kind of alluded to it with like the VC model, but um, you know move fast and break things, right? As a mentality, as a worldview, that's you know you're aiming for lightning in a bottle with that. And I get to an extent there's there's kind of an analogy with the slow hunch companies, uh, with the idea being you test a lot of things. Um, and you take lessons from your failures and move on. But break things is far more destructive than merely try things, see if they work, and 
if they don't, you know, try something different and use the lessons to keep going. I'd still say Amazon is like Amazon itself is is a slow hunch, but these other areas are the adjacent possible um, they're pushing at. But uh, yeah, I'm really struck by LVMH as an example because it's just so out, it's outside the box of from where we started and, and totally totally fits. Yeah, and one other thing you mentioned earlier, Elliot, too, which I think comes is a parallel or at least a corollary to this is that if you don't take some time, if you have the lightning in a bottle phenomenon where let's say you have just sort of unlimited VC at your disposal and you can spend and burn money like crazy and it leads directly and quickly to a rocket ship IPO or something along those lines, it can really ingrain some bad habits. And I think if you're trying to build a business to sell it and flip it, that's one thing. If you're trying to build something that's going to be a truly great company for a period of decades, I think it really helps to start with that kind of lean, struggling startup mode for a while. And I think it ingrains much better habits. And I think it's shocking how many companies, you know, the garage startup is obviously a cliche, but it's true for a lot of reasons. And it's amazing to me how many great companies have humble origins and retain that frugality um, over over long periods of time beyond which they could even spend basically whatever they re- they want, but they they continue to keep that frugality at their core, and I think that's pretty important. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's uh, something that's like institutionalized in the DNA and creates processes and and procedures and a discipline when attacking other problems. One thing that comes to mind, John, I mean, in MOI in particular, you started with uh, monthly. Um, idea journal, right? You were covering a lot of great ideas and evolved, I think, into a, uh, not not I think, you evolved into a phenomenal community um, with so much more than just uh, monthly ideas, you know, uh, with conferences that are both online and in person. So I think that's uh, maybe a slow hunch of its own kind, maybe. Is that is that a way to think about it or was there something a little different there? Well, it's a super slow hunch. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to see uh, uh, any kind of much of, a, of growth there um, that's exponential, but that's okay. Um, it is it is exponential, I think, in some ways, uh, just in terms of the quality of the community. But I think it's deliberately an idea that, you know, I don't really want it to become mass market uh, as a company uh, or a community. So... It's a little bit different in that sense, but I definitely agree with you that um, I've kind of realized things over time where, you know, early on as I started out, I thought, okay, doing the monthly newsletter is going to be my value add because my ideas are so great and well-researched. And then I quickly realized that actually the people subscribing to this had even better ideas. And if I could just get them to share their ideas, it would add even more value. And then once I did one in-person event, I realized that those people talking to each other in person and getting to know each other had perhaps even more value. And so just kind of following that, you know, listening and 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 not being wedded to any one thesis but just kind of seeing what what people like yourselves are getting the most value out of it, out of and then uh, trying to do more of that. It's uh, a great example, John. 
Yeah, that's the essence of a slow hunch. It doesn't have to be exponential growth. It's about like you you saw angles and paths to create that much more value. Um, and it, you know, wasn't apparent from the very start. And it couldn't have been apparent without starting the journey, right? Um, had you not had the ideas out there regularly and started talking to the people reading them. But but the value uh that us uh, subscribers and participants and members get, um, that grew exponentially. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I just changing topics a little <laughs> bit, uh, a little uncomfortable with this one, but one person that, that I really enjoy following on Twitter is Paul Graham. He talks about a lot of ideas that apply to this, um, kind of startups that, don't rely on the VC funding, but really think about how to, you know, make the model work and and um, and try to be profitable. Um, I think that's just such a big thing because um, he points out that basically a lot of the comp- these companies that end up spending a ton of venture capital could have succeeded just as well without it if they just thought a little harder. You know, venture capital kind of makes you lazy uh, in in some ways. Um, and and actually can lead to worse outcomes. Yeah, that, that's something that I've definitely, like, you know, when you get too big too fast, it's one of the points I've made about Twitter all the time, and it's not just venture capital, but it's when you have sky-high expectations and it's impossible to fulfill those ambitions, um, you make really bad choices and you try to do things that aren't core to your essence and you get really lost as a company. And as you see with Twitter, it could take many years to kind of like reap build the foundation to get yourself into a better place. So I think that's so, so true. Yeah. And just one other uh, point on, on slow hunches, I feel like contrarian ideas tend to be a lot more slow hunch, at least for me. Um, you know, you can kind of quick, if you agree with the consensus, you can kind of quickly come around and say, yeah, that's, that's true. But if you start developing developing a truly a contrarian idea you always have a, a lot of questions you always get pushed back and you have to work through all of those objections and that takes time but at, at, in the end if the idea is still standing after all that uh, you feel really good about it yeah I think that's exactly what it's all about right you have to like beat up the idea a lot of times and the more resilient it is to it being attacked from any angles it's what I've experienced like you know PayPal from the spin-off of eBay through 2017 really couldn't get anything to go right and you know very suddenly the stock started working and not a single thing was different from the year before when it wasn't working on very similar kinds of uh, earnings trajectory um, but you know just it took time for people to warm to the idea that, yeah, this recipe works and they could deliver on it. Um, and I feel like in Twitter, we're like near that inflection point where it finally gets accepted that, ah, you know, they do have a plan. They do have the foundational pieces in place and can capitalize on, you know, what they're doing. Uh, being a contrarian is hard for that reason, because it feels like you spend, you know, way more time fighting the fight than you do um, kind of receiving the the uh, compensation for having been there the whole time. And it makes it easy to kind of hit eject too soon. Um, one of my formative experiences on that front was having spent three years in NVIDIA, buying it at $12, holding it up to 18 
And the third time it got to 18, I was like, God damn it, I'm out of this company. It's so frustrating. I'll take my 50% and move on. And you know, next thing you know, the stock never looks back and goes up like, I think, 30x from there within the next couple of two years. Um, so yeah, it could, it, it could be frustrating uh, being a contrarian in those situations. And it can lead to some bad decisions because of how, you know, how challenging it could be. But I, I definitely think that's part of the essence of it all. And that's a it's a great it's one thing I was going to add. It's a great point. On the flip side of it is if if good ideas uh, are often born with a slow hunch, which I totally agree with, you, you do have to be careful to not let this slow uh, pace of change you know pass you by because a lot of times people will take a long time to build up to a conclusion and then that's it and their brain shuts off and things continue to change around them and they're stuck in the past. I mean, I've, I've certainly made that mistake myself. You have to continuously be learning and updating what you know and what you think you know to stay out of danger. And, um, you know, just because you've spent a lot of time working on an idea, developing an idea, executing an idea, does not mean that the world owes you success. And, and maybe just before we wrap it up, one one other example that just came to mind of this notion of slow hunch. Um, a lot of people think that George Soros's uh, Bank of England trade um, was kind of a a quick money maker, uh, but there's a wonderful uh, YouTube video out there where basically a documentary done after that, but already probably over 30 years ago that they shot that thing. And, you know, he was talking about how that trade had been available for a decade before it actually paid off. And he knew about that for years and um, and, and kind of built it up um, in his mind, but it really came down to timing. And, you know, he figured out, why the timing was right um, when it when when he kind of made that trade super big. But if you had done that trade, you know, and then just sat on it for 10 years, your returns would have been terrible. So I think with some of these ideas that kind of take a long time to really uh, ripen, um, you know, figuring out that timing can also be so important. And that's just a whole nother skill onto itself um, that I'm still really struggling with. Me too. That, that's such a huge point. Like when you have these slow hunches, you could end up in a situation where you know you're right before everyone else realizes that what you're observing is totally correct. Um, and that's powerful, uh, especially when you're investing. If you could ha- get in a situation where you're like, wow, I, I, I know I'm right, but Mr. Market doesn't realize it yet. And you could size up for that. I mean, that's what Soros called going for the jugular. It's a really interesting point. I, I love it, John. Great, guys. Well, uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening as well. Uh, looking forward to next week, and maybe we'll address uh, some listener questions uh, next week as well. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.